Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 187. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is a man who had the most shampoo head in America in 2005, Harry Romanowski. Hey, Valerie, and I still have some of that hair left. Oh, that's good. Most people don't. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty concerns about hard water, patting or smearing on skincare products, and which is best, and talking about natural ingredients that are good for hair. We also have our new segment, Kitchen Cosmetics, back. But first, let's say hi to Perry. We haven't talked since we came back from vacation. That's right. I was in the Dominican Republic, and, you know, despite the uh, things you hear in the news media around here, it was perfectly fine, and I felt perfectly safe. You didn't drink the alcohol? Oh, no, I drank the alcohol, but everything was in cans, so you know, it was fine. It was good. Oh, that's good. No open jars. Yeah. I just got back from Prague. I had a wonderful time. Have you ever been? I've never been there, and I've, I've wanted to go. It was amazing. It's such an interesting part of the Czech Republic based on the historical influence of the different groups that have inhabited that area. And I, I do have to say, I want to give a shout out to the tour guide company I used, if that's okay. It's owned sure. by a husband-wife duo named Vadim and Bonita, who are expats living in Prague. And they provided a walking tour for the group I was with of the city and I, I don't think I would have appreciated Prague in the same way than if I had not done the tour with them. I learned so much just about history, art, architecture, and more importantly, the when and why of how everything was put together. Uh, their company is called Insight Cities. You can find them at insightcities.eu, I think. Um, it's, this isn't a paid ad, uh, but I had such an amazing time with them. They also host tours in a bunch of other cities, and I'm a Virgo, so I'm going to check off the list of all the cities that they do tours in because I felt like a scholar leaving that trip. I felt so smart. Wow. Now, now two things. First, do they do any tours in New Zealand? Because I'm heading there in July. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Just Eastern Europe primarily. Second, I'm wondering about the size of that city, so it's nice and walkable? Super walkable. It was it's a city of a million plus people, I think 1.2 million in the in the greater Prague area. But it was, the old Prague was very walkable. They have a great public transportation system, an above ground metro train, and a bus system as well. So it was it was great. Well, I'll definitely have to get out there. Hey, when you were there, did you see any beauty products that were interesting? You know what? I didn't. Uh, they have their particular brands that they like there, but I didn't get to peek into too many shops because I was so busy walking around and drinking lots of Pilsner. <laughs> well, I can't wait to get out there myself sometime. It was fantastic. You'll have to book Vadim and Bonita. You know, Valerie, there's been a ton of beauty product news since we've been off. Oh gosh, the first one I do want to talk about with you is the Jaclyn Hill lipstick controversy. Yeah, I was amazed on this one at how how many people had contacted us about it and said, hey, could you weigh in on this? And I thought that was, was kind of strange that so many people contacted us about it. Hi, my name is Julie, and I've been a really big fan of this podcast. So here's my question. There's this very famous beauty influencer with millions of subscribers called... Jaclyn Hill, and she just launched her brand of lipsticks, and it is already filled to the brim with controversy. Twitter is going absolutely crazy with customers posting about their experiences online. For example, some found that their lipstick just breaks immediately on first contact, while others are finding very unusual things in their lipsticks. You can find pictures of people pointing out small gritty beads in their lipstick or even something that looks like hair growing out of them. I was wondering if you'd have some insight on this. Would this be a production or ingredients problem? There's a lot of theories online, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Well, I think the situation is so bizarre. People are trying to find some kind of answer. She has created her own line of lipsticks, and unfortunately, the first production batch didn't go very well. Oh, not, 
not only is the batch soft, a lot of people are complaining of their lipsticks not being in a bullet form. They're very pasty and falling apart. But a few people are saying that the product is clearly adulterated with either hair or particles stuck on the outside of the lipstick. It's uh, pretty, pretty gross. You know, it's interesting. I saw on Twitter, the FDA said, oh, there's a recall. And then somebody responded to the FDA and says, why haven't you recalled the Jaclyn Hill lipstick yet? <laughs> Well, I think uh, Miss Hill should have recalled the lipstick. I, I'm really surprised why up until today she really hasn't taken any action on it. So many people are expressing concern. It certainly probably devastated the brand and her launch. There are a lot of people uh, claiming to be experts chiming in on social media about what happened, but the reality is there are a lot of possibilities about how she would have been able to launch with a product with a low quality and a product with adulteration concerns with the hairs and miscellaneous materials on the sticks. I don't think we'll ever know. It's not like Jaclyn Hill went into the laboratory and mixed up her own formula. She was working with some, presumably some sort of legitimate contract manufacturer. Now, it could have been that she looked for whoever she could find as the cheapest price or somebody sort of steered her wrong, but... It's, it was, she was certainly she was working with a legitimate contract manufacturer. Surely, and maybe her lab work went okay, and there were issues in the scale up. Maybe they didn't do any lab work, and she just went right to scale up. But ultimately, making a beauty product is hard. Manufacturing is hard, and when you are trying to start a brand, it's really important that you work with people who are experts real true experts and are in right. the know and can help navigate all of these issues. When I first read about the complaints and how the lipsticks were soft and smushed, I thought maybe this could just be a scale-up issue. It's one thing to make a little beaker in the lab. It's another to try to make, you know, several thousand pounds of something. And maybe they switched raw materials in between lab work and production. For and sure. when you're working with pigments, it's super critical that you... A, are working with certified pigments in the United States, and that you're not changing the suppliers or the grades around because those can impact uh, crystal formation in a product. And then I thought maybe they didn't do any lab work and they just went to production with this. I, I started to get more and more like, oh my gosh, what could have happened? And as I mentioned a second ago, I don't think we will know. But what I do think we know is that the quality control off the production line probably is not ideal given some of the photos I've seen of lipsticks with fibers, cardboard particulate, and other st un unrecognizable stuff on the bullet. Well, certainly it would seem that there's a, a quality control problem. Now, I'm a little suspicious, though. I'm not saying this happened, but suppose <laughs> that, you know, as a social media influencer, you do develop some competing enemies, I guess you would say, right? Uh, people who kind of want to knock you down. And I could imagine, you know, some somebody could either doctor up a thing and post it on social media just to get attention or something. And certainly people got a lot of attention. I'm not saying that happens, but I'm saying that could happen. Like the people who go to Wendy's and put the finger in the chili and, and say they bought it like that. Exactly. That kind of thing. And you can see in social media that can be amped up so much easier, you know, with because people want to knock other people down. It's just what happens on social media. Now, having said that, since she has just, just I saw today someone posted on Facebook that she's honoring um, refunds to everybody who bought the product. So clearly it was more than just uh, some person putting together a, a thing to go viral. And certainly quality control issues like that happen. This is one of the risks you take, though, when you're getting products from a small startup brand like that. They don't have the quality controls. They don't have the manufacturing. If Maybelline or Procter & Gamble or Unilever they, or L'Oreal launched a product like this, you wouldn't have these kinds of obvious quality control problems. Not that they don't have problems, but you have a lot more checks and balances to make sure that doesn't happen. Sure, and you also have years of know-how um, integrated into your process where you can prevent these issues from going to the market. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I saw that some people said it claimed it was uh, 
it was contaminated with mold and i haven't seen any evidence that it was mold it could have just uh, one of the suggestions it was that it was like cotton from the gloves of the worker and that's what the fibers were i i don't know it, it's it's tough to say but that that's a risk you take when you're buying from a small startup brand exactly what else did you see on the news this week perry actually i was contacted by uh, actually, I was contacted by a few media outlets, but uh, Slate Slate was doing an, an article on the rise of all-natural deodorants, and that got me looking into this. And this is one of the things that I've this this claim I've seen in the deodorant and a person sphere is this zero percent aluminum claim. And actually, this could tie into uh, a new segment that I, I that I think we could call. Who are you crapping? <laughs> because <laughs> when I was doing all that, and that would be claims from companies which are not exactly lying, but obviously a bit misleading. <laughs> and one of those that I that I came onto when doing a little research about the natural deodorants thing was that Dove had launched a zero percent aluminum deodorant. Oh. Do you know what the problem with the zero percent aluminum deodorant is? What's the problem? Deodorants don't use aluminum. Like they've never used aluminum. It's like saying a zero percent sulfate-free hair conditioner. It's just not a thing you put in there. Now, one of the things you have to know about antiperspirants and deodorants are antiperspirants are over-the-counter drugs, and they do use aluminum salts to to work. What happens is the aluminum salts will essentially plug up your sweat glands, and that prevents the sweating. We don't exactly know all the details that worked out, but that's pretty much the leading scientific theory. Deodorants, on the other hand, they don't stop the sweating. All they do is they have a antibacterial, and so they'll kill the bacteria there and cover it with fragrances. And so when I see a big company, especially a company like Unilever, launching with a claim that is clearly, I mean, it's not, it's not wrong. It's not lying. It doesn't have aluminum in it, it, but it does kind of imply that it could have had aluminum in it. And 0% aluminum deodorants... They're all 0%, so it's it's just a, a nonsense claim. I call these free and easy claims. This is just bad marketing at work. It's super easy for anyone to say, my product doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. But to speak to how your product actually works or what it does and what it does contain is a little bit more challenging. Super easy to say, oh, it doesn't have anything that it never really had in any way and consumers are none the wiser. I think there are so many myths about antiperspirant and the health issues it can cause that perhaps we could focus on something like this in the future, but it's really unfortunate for me when I see a brand, especially a brand with a large platform like Dove. I personally wear Dove antiperspirant because I like the way it feels and I like how I smell, I guess, when I wear it, that I just get so disheartened to see them with such a huge platform spreading misinformation. Come on, you guys can do better, Dove. Well, one of the things I want to point out is that you, you said that you know these this kind of marketing isn't effective, and but I think it is effective, and that's what's really sad to me is that fear marketing is is what is working a lot in the cosmetic industry right now. That's the whole drive with paraben-free or sulfate-free or 0% aluminum. These are not benefit claims. These are all just fear marketing, and they seem to be taking over the, the cosmetic industry, or at least a big portion of it. It's because they're easy. They're easy to make. It's To write a really well-written claim, it's mind-blowing when you really dissect it as someone in the industry, if I'm looking at a claim, and when I slow down and say, well, wait, what is it really saying? You know, the top of my brain is just blown off. But when I see a claim like 0% aluminum deodorant, I'm like, oh, how much effort did that take to come (laughs) up with in the brainstorming room? Interestingly enough, out in the EU in July, they passed some rules which are preventing a lot of these free from claims. And I think a claim like this, 0% aluminum deodorant, since aluminum's not used in deodorant, I don't think that'll be an allowed claim in the EU. Correct. So that actually was an enforcement created years ago, but they actually have this enforcement date in place. So starting July 2nd, 2019, there's a set of common criteria that establishes how brands are able to create claims such as paraben-free or aluminum-free in this case. And starting July 2nd, the national authorities will start to look at those guidelines created 
uh, way back ago uh, when the cosmetics directive was set up and start actually taking action against brands. So it'll be interesting to see how even in the EU, while you shouldn't have been making those free from claims for some time, how exactly brands will see that enforcement. And maybe we'll see the marketplace truly shift in the EU. Yeah, we'll see. But here in the United States, we got that freedom of speech and you can pretty much say whatever you want. As long Until as you the can Federal prove Trade it. Commission comes after you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, people do get sued. So it's not all, it's not a whole free for all, but it's yeah. a lot of free for all. Oh, gosh. Well, let's head to our new segment, Kitchen Cosmetics. Kitchen Cosmetics is our newest segment. It's a review of homemade beauty hacks, and we'll tell you whether or not they're safe or effective. This week, we're going to cover, will lemon juice lighten up darkened armpits? Here's a kitchen beauty hack that we've run across, and I've seen it a few times, so I thought, let's cover it. The idea is that you can reduce the color of your armpits using lemon juice. (laughs) Sounds Uh, so painful, huh? Uh... Now, to see whether this is going to work or not, it's helpful to know first what's in lemon juice and then why is the armpit skin darker than it should be expected anyway. In lemon juice, uh, you know, lemon juice is a lot of citric acid and you're going to have some portion of vitamin C. So I guess the notion people get in their head that some studies will demonstrate that vitamin C can interfere with the color production of the melanocytes. It's not a great treatment for that, but there is some suggestion that that works, vitamin C. And then, of course, there's the the acid part about it, and people get this notion of exfoliating with acid, right? And so Mm -hmm. you can see, well, there's exfoliating, there's color stopping, and you can get how people might get there. But unfortunately, this, this treatment just does not hold water when we look at it. So let's look at some of the causes of the darkening of people's armpits. Now, first, there is shaving. When you shave, you cut the hairs off at just about below the surface of the skin. And if your hairs are slightly darker than your skin color, that can give you kind of the appearance that you have a dark stain when it's really just the subsurface hair. In a case like this, if that's what's causing the darker armpits, lemon juice is definitely not going to help that. You might try something like waxing instead of shaving, but that sounds painful. It is. I could tell you it is. (laughs) You know, as an aside, I was watching this Allure video where this woman, uh, she tried every shaving uh, technique for her legs, and she put a grid on her legs. That was a real hoot. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes. That'll be fun to see. All right, another cause of darkened armpits is that uh, there, there's, there's a suggestion that there's a buildup of dead skin cells. Uh, at least one dermatologist that was in an article I'd read that was dark spots were... The, the result of dead skin cells that are trapped in the microscopic hills and valleys of your skin. Now, if this is really the cause, still the the dark and the the lemon juice isn't going to provide much benefit here either. Instead, you're going to want to have something like uh, that can exfoliate, like an AHA, like lactic acid, or just use an exfoliation washcloth or something like that. Those would be better than any kind of lemon juice. Another thing that might cause the darkening is the use of antiperspirants and deodorants. In theory, some of the ingredients in these products, perhaps something from the fragrance, might be reacting with the skin and that can cause discoloration. Practically speaking, this seems unlikely, but many people do claim that when they stop using a certain brand of antiperspirant, then this darkness goes away. So in this case, instead of the lemon juice, you might try switching brands of uh, antiperspirant or maybe just go to a deodorant, which could work differently for you. The fourth of five possibilities is that uh, the darkening armpits is a medical condition called acrincosis nigricans. This condition causes light brown to black markings on the neck, under the arms, or in the groin, and it can be related to insulin production or to a glandular disorder. Better to than lemon juice would be controlling your diet for modulating your insulin production and maybe using retin-A, alpha-hydroxy acids, and maybe a salicylic acid prescription to lighten your armpits. Lemon juice in this case is not going to help. The fifth cause is hyperpigmentation. This condition is caused by your skin producing excess melanin pigment. And now it doesn't usually occur in the armpits, so it's less likely to be a cause. But if this is what's causing your problem, skin bleaching cream might help. But again, this isn't something that you should do without first consulting a dermatologist. Right. These are actual medical conditions and a home kitchen hack of 
lemon juice right. with a pH of two to exfoliate your skin isn't going to help the root cause of the issue. So please go to a dermatologist and get prescribed an alpha hydroxy acid or salicylic acid or Retin-A or some other prescription. Don't try to take care of that yourself. Exactly. And actually putting lemon juice on your skin, actually it can react with the sun and cause a rash and having a rash under your armpits is really no fun that actually happened to me when i was using the old spice deodorant which i really liked for a while but then it caused this redness on my arm so i stopped using that one but rashes under your armpits is not fun all right to sum it up do not use lemon juice to lighten up darkened armpits as a beauty hack right it's not going to work and it can be dangerous yeah that's we want to keep you guys safe all right, well, let's answer some beauty questions. Yay! The first topic we're going to cover today is going back to water hardness. I briefly covered that Oh, on... more water hardness. All right. Yeah, we briefly covered that on episode 182, where we talked about the concept of hard water, like what is it, how do you measure it, when a loyal follower had asked us via Facebook if we could review what is hard water, how to test for it at home and what we think about those filter heads you can get for your shower. She seemed very excited about hard water, too. I did not know that had hard water had such a following. Well, it does. I've actually read a bunch of papers on this topic, and I'm super excited to talk about it. So we'll mostly talk about calcium and magnesium when we talk about hard water because those are the most prevalent metal ions, and they're what give water the perceived hardness. If mm -hmm. The metals are present at a certain level, the water is considered hard, and if they're not present at a significant level, the water is considered soft. And numerous studies have been done specifically to look at the impact of metal ions in tap water on hair, including more recently a study about the impact of copper on hair by scientists at Procter & Gamble, and we'll come back to that one. Mm -hmm. so, so the first thing scientists wanted to study when they were looking at tap water metals and hair was where are the metals present in the hair fiber? Calcium is the big ion that they talk about the most because they actually found out that it is the preferred metal for your hair to absorb compared to magnesium. In fact, you will have seven to nine times more calcium uptake than magnesium. Well, that's not to say that hair just prefers calcium. It just, chemically speaking, it, it, it absorbs more readily than the other metals. Correct. Yep. Thanks for clarifying. So this actually is independent of the type of water that was used in the study, and it's independent of all water hardness. So whether your water is soft, really hard, the calcium just goes right into the hair over magnesium. And it's actually not due to the size of the ion because calcium is actually a larger atom than magnesium. It's actually because of the charge density. So when you have a smaller atom like magnesium the electrons are really tight to the center and calcium has a bigger atomic radius and these outer electrons can interact more easily with anionic sites on the hair and if maybe you've heard over several episodes that we've talked about um, anionic means negatively charged and when your hair is damaged it's negatively charged so these calcium ions just want to be interacting with the negative sites on your hair more so we'll just kind of talk about calcium when we talk about the hard water. Yeah. So where did they find it? Uh, they found that it kind of was all over the whole hair fiber, but mostly in the cuticle layers. They found some in melanin granules in the cortex, and then in the medulla, which is the center cavity of the hair. That's sort of like a, a an empty type space. And so calcium calcium was found all over the hair. All over, right? But its presence on the cuticle suggests there's an environmental source present. So on the cuticle actually accumulates most on the edges where the hair is damaged. And the more hair was damaged, the more calcium was found in the hair. Interesting. So for example, bleached hair had more calcium present in hair that was just colored by oxidative hair color. And all of those had more calcium present than just virgin hair. So we can assume that the more damaged your hair is, the more calcium goes in. And the more damaged it is, the, the further it goes into the cuticle is actually what the study found. And that makes sense. It's, it seems like it's a, a sponge with a lot more holes in it. Exactly. So the interesting thing was, people say, ah, oh, what do I do about hard water? The interesting thing about this study, a couple studies that were done about this, was that no matter how soft or hard the water was, 
there was still the same amount of metal uptake in the hair. So if you had really soft water, you had a bunch of metals in the hair. If you had really hard water, you had a bunch of metals in the hair. This is because hair has a finite amount of space for the metals to bind. And what actually influences the binding is just the level of damage of the hair. So, you know, unless you're using completely deionized water to wash your hair, you're going to have, even if you have reverse osmosis water, you're going to have a little bit of metals present and your hair is going to take them in. And it just depends how damaged it is. So really it doesn't matter if you have hard or soft water in some kind of way, because as long as you have hair and it's weathered, um, you're going to be impacted. So essentially, no matter how hard the water is, the hair can only absorb so much and then the rest of it just can't absorb anymore. Right. And no matter how soft the water is, your hair is going to absorb whatever is in there. So depending on how damaged it is. So in a way, hard water is kind of a moot point. Um, So of course, as predicted, virgin hair has the least amount of metal binding in both hard and soft water hair colored by oxidative color systems next, and then the most amount of metal uptake was bleached hair. And as we discussed, that makes a lot of sense in soft water or hard water because the hair is negatively charged and it's just going to attract whatever's in the water. And then the study found, well, what if we increase the pH of water? So for all you fans who drink um, alkaline water out there, alkaline water actually was not very good for the hair fiber because it increases the binding of metals to the hair, which again makes sense because when you have this alkaline state over the fiber, you have more negative charges than if you were at a neutral pH. So uh, don't pour alkaline water on your hair. So no matter how hard or soft your water is, you're going to have this metal exposure. And really what to take into consideration is how healthy your hair fiber is, but what exactly is calcium and magnesium doing to the hair? Well, they're rather innocent metals in the water, uh, but when you are showering with them, they can form these water-insoluble soaps on the hair, kind of like how your bathtub gets soap scum. And this scummy coating can leave hair feeling stiff and looking rather dull. Now, that was a much bigger problem when uh, things are soap-based, but with synthetic detergents, it's a little bit less of a problem. Right. And if you're using a sulfated shampoo, you should be fine because your hair's getting (laughs) very clean clean anyway. The sulfate-free ones, on the other hand. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, but of course, calcium and magnesium aren't the only other metal ions in tap water. Copper's another one. The copper ion was actually the study, uh, the center of the study of the Procter & Gamble research. And copper can be found in plumbing, pipes, little gasket uh, closures of water heaters. So even if you don't have copper pipes, maybe somewhere along the way, the waters come into very brief contact with copper somewhere. Tap water has very, very low levels of copper intrinsically, but it doesn't really matter because copper is very highly affinitive for the hair. Perry, you mentioned earlier, hair is a sponge, and if it's damaged, it's even more spongy, and the copper is just going to go in. And considering that hair grows for years on your head, even if you have very minimal exposure to copper, the copper ions will build up and accumulate in the fiber. And the bad thing about copper is, well, the good thing in a lot of ways of life is it's super reactive. Not a good thing when that's in your hair. So what happens is when you go to bleach the hair fiber or color the hair fiber, copper interacts with hydrogen peroxide radicals to catalyze reactions that can damage the protein in the hair. Hair will break, you can get split ends, all that makes hair harder to manage, less shiny. And typically, my issue with copper is a byproduct of these copper-catalyzed reactions is heat, and that's where if you have an excessive amount of copper in the hair, if you're coloring or bleaching your hair, you feel a lot of heat and can get burned. So, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, copper is not good for the hair. Fortunately, it's not too present in water unless you have um, lots of old copper pipes or maybe well water or something like that. Yeah, or people throwing pennies into a wishing well. Don't wash your hair in in the wishing well. Do not. No. So copper can also be found in excessive levels in swimming pools. Most people think chlorine is responsible for turning their hair green, but it's actually copper as the copper oxidizes and creates that green patina. Wow, interesting. Yeah, but chlorine is in tap water too. We know that it's used as an antibacterial um, additive into water. And chlorine has been studied with hair for 
gosh, at least since the 70s or 80s, the, the impacts of chlorine in hair. And in normal tap water, chlorine has a maximum of four parts per million. I think I read on the EPA website, so that's not a tiny amount. And anything at four or lower is safe for drinking. And I did come across a series of studies done in the 80s where they studied the interaction of chlorine and the hair fiber at 10 parts per million. So we're talking yeah. a pretty, pretty heavy dose. And then they looked over time, if we continue to wash the hair with all this chlorine at various pHs, what happens? And they found that the hair exposed to the chlorine suffered cuticle loss and looked dry and was just horrible looking over 30 washes at a neutral pH. And I didn't really like this study because A, that's a lot more chlorine than typical exposure. Yeah. And two, I, I didn't see that they looked at non-chlorinated water because I think just washing your hair with water can cause those negative attributes to the hair. So that's probably the case. I was involved in a study when I was working on the VO5 hot oil line because they wanted to see, does VO5 hot oil protect your hair from chlorine damage? And one of the big challenges was we, we came up with a 55-gallon drum of water, which we turned into like a pool uh, as, as, our, uh, as our model pool. And actually, it, we, it did end up that if you treated your hair with this pre-treatment uh, hot oil treatment, it what did, did protect to some extent uh, against chlorine damage. Was that water damage as well, or just chlorine damage? Well, that's how that's how claims go, right? We want to specifically support the claim that said it protects your hair from chlorine. So, as far as we looked at, it was the chlorine, but it probably was water damage too. Yeah, yeah, because the hair was probably more hydrophobic. But anyway, that's not. I'm, I don't want to dis- minimize these ions as like, well, they're not really a problem, or you don't have to worry about them in your tap water. Be- because varying regions and sources of water have different ions and different ion level content. And then you have these internal sources of metals as well. So let's say if you're taking a medicine and there's a a metal salt as part of a byproduct from metabolizing the medicine that could be expelled through your hair fiber. So there's lots of different ways which we can be exposed. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, sometimes I'll go to his, his lake house and the shower at that lake house is just full of sulfur and just smells terribly. So in a way, you know, I'm talking about just these ions here. There are different things you have to worry about, but whether or not you really need to worry about them in most living situations, at least in the United States, is yeah. I don't think you have to worry about normal city tap water, which is treated unless exactly. you live in Michigan. But (laughs) if you wanted to test your water, you can buy these uh, home kits and you can check for the total dissolved solid content, which is a generic part per million count of how much particulates in your water. Or you can buy these water testing kits designed for specific metals like copper, chlorine, etc. But unless you think your tap water is not fit for consumption, it's probably a waste of resources since there are allowable limits of ions in water and... At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how hard or soft your water is for these, and I'll put them in air quotes, normal metal ions. It's how damaged your hair is that determines how you're impacted. The question also said, hey, what about these shower heads that you can buy with these built-in filters? And um, in doing some reading and talking with friends who have bought these water filters, uh, typically how these filters work is they actually f- filter out metals, kind of like a brittle water filter for your refrigerator. But most of them only work by converting chlorine into some kind of salt, so it's not available to hit the hair. And out of all the metals, I think chlorine is probably like the least worrisome for hair. So I don't think buying a filter for the chlorine is probably the best use, especially considering how low of a dose. It's not like the chlorine levels are coming out of pool water. Like chlorine levels in drinking water are just a lot lower. Exactly. And, you know, these devices are expensive. Uh, they, I have a friend who used to buy them and she just got so sick of buying a new filter every week, you know, at a hundred dollars a pop or whatever. And two, when you go online and look at the reviews, people are like, this is really expensive and I just don't notice a difference. So I think it's safe to say that you may be safe not investing in one. Looks like we have an audio question next. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Carolyn from California. 
of a while back, Valerie helped me over Instagram with a perplexing problem in my salon. And today I'm asking a question about marketing versus efficacy of product. So with in-salon products, um, a lot of consumers in my area are looking at natural, organic, blah, blah, blah. Knowing what I know about products from you guys and from my own research, I know that that is not necessarily what's best for their hair, but I'm fighting a losing battle against marketing. So what can I look for in products labeled organic and natural that will market well to my clients, but still work well for their hair? Well, thanks so much for that question, Carolyn. Uh, She actually had contacted you, huh, Valerie? Mm-hmm. So, well, we are available through uh, Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook. However you can contact us, we respond in a wide variety of places. But our favorite place to respond here is on the show. And if you want an audio question, you can send it, just record it on your phone, send an email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com, and you might make it onto a future show. All right, let's get to these natural ingredients. It's, it's understandable that there, there are some consumers that want natural things. There's this whole health and wellness trend out there, and it, it seems a lot of beauty customers are embracing that. This actually was a trend that seems to have come from food, people looking for organic, organic food or organically grown food. And that's a lot of times things that happen in the food industry will spill over to the cosmetic industry. This natural trend seems to be one of those. What do you think of natural ingredients for hair, Valerie? I think if we, first of all, we have to define what natural means. But I think the hair, people just treat it as this dead substrate sticking out of their head. And really, to make it feel good, look good, and to change the physical look of it, it relies on chemistry. And there isn't just, there's not a whole lot of natural chemistries or chemistries that people would consider natural that can make the hair fiber feel better in that kind of way. And maybe the same could be said for skin, but I just, I'm not a big believer in natural for hair at the sacrifice of the performance. Right. If we look at the kinds of ingredients that go into hair products, there aren't a lot of natural ingredients. Let me tell you what I mean by natural. When I'm saying natural, uh, some people like will strictly think, okay, natural ingredients are things that you go outside, you find a plant, you crush it up, you squeeze it, and whatever's coming out of there, that's my natural ingredient. Now, it's a blend of all kinds of chemicals, so we don't really always know what it is. So, So the industry, we just call it an extract. Sometimes those extracts have certain active ingredients or ingredients that we know have some sort of function. Other times they're just mashed up proteins or hydrolyzed kinds of things. So it's tough to say, but what it is not tough to say is that most of those kinds of ingredients, they don't have the kind of cosmetic effect that you want in hair care. Let's take, for example, uh, a cleanser. There really are no no really good functioning, naturally occurring uh, cleansers that you'd ever want to put on your hair. Absolutely not. There are a lot of people saying that they have these plant-based shampoos, and at the end of the day, these are compounds that are fractionated out of some plant feedstock, typically palm or coconut. They're chemically modified and engineered, and then they're put into a shampoo. And so they may look a little more natural on the label, but at the end of the day, they're not really natural. Well, one of my favorite examples of this, uh, the Honesty Company was making the claim. For, on, uh, they were making the claim on one of their products. Is that your nickname for them, the Honesty Company? <laughs> no, there's there really a company. Uh, but they were making a claim that they were sodium lauryl sulfate free. And instead of sodium lauryl sulfate, they were using cocoa lauryl sulfate, <laughs> which mm. like you get sodium lauryl sulfate. One of the ways you can get it is from coconut oil. So it's really the same kind of thing. So so there really are no good natural cleansers. Some people will say, okay, alkyl polyglucosides are cleansers, and a lot of sulfate-free shampoos are based on that. But there is no alkyl polyglucosides don't exist in nature. You have to chemically modify stuff from nature to get that. Now, the, the starting material is a plant, of course, but some people aren't going to consider that natural. I, I think that's chemistry. I don't really think it's natural. But Maybe your natural consumer will think it is, and so that's an ingredient that can cleanse hair 
that some people think is natural. I, I don't really think it is. No, and I actually don't like it as a hair cleanser. I was thinking about it the other day, actually. Um, in my shower, I was testing a competitor product, and the minute I applied it to my hair, I thought, this is using alkyl polyglucosides. Right. And I looked yeah. at the back, and sure enough, it was. And I don't think they rinse easily from the hair. I think they stick to the hair fiber. So yeah, it's a very draggy feeling, and yeah, it's I don't, yeah, I don't like it at all. No, I hate it. And even if they're considered natural by other parties, I would rather not use it than use it based on on how it performs. Now, if we go to so that's that's the problem with shampoos. If we look at conditioners, conditioners the main conditioning ingredients are cationic surfactants, which there's no natural cationic surfactants, and then silicones. And while silicones are derived from something out of nature, not a lot of people will consider silicones natural. And so now you've got your two best conditioning type of ingredients that you can't even use. So the way that these conditioning agents typically work is you have these cationic surfactants that Perry talked about. Cationic means positively charged. And so they work by sticking to the negatively charged sites on the hair, which is where the hair is perceived to be damaged. And then silicones form a lubricious layer over the hair fiber to allow for better wet comb, dry comb, and smoothness of the fiber. The hair looks shiny, looks healthier. Now, there are some other types of ingredients that go into conditioners, and this is where you might find some benefits out of natural ingredients. I know you're not a big fan of it, Valerie, but coconut oil has been shown to be able to penetrate the hair, and it could possibly contribute to hair strengthening and the flexibility of the fiber. So some people find benefit out of coconut oil. I have no comment on it. (laughs) I have nothing nice to say, so I'm not going to say it at all. That's good. Some other things that you find in hair products, uh, on the styling side, clay and charcoal They can leave a residue on the hair that will help to separate the strands. And so those kinds of ingredients would be considered natural, although I'm not sure how far you get with charcoal. But that was kind of a trend there last year a bit, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, those ingredients would be natural right from nature, and they can give you some styling volume. So that's a possibility. Styling polymers, of course, are are going to work better, but if you're if you're hell bent on just natural stuff, those that is an option. Another area is in the area of dry shampoos. Now, now dry shampoos are based a lot of them are based on talc. Although talc has such a bad reputation these days, I imagine most of those will be switching to cornstarch, which is typically natural or naturally derived. And then tapioca is another possibility for a dry shampoo. So, so those are natural options, and if your consumer is looking for that, um, those are some other things to consider. At the end of the day, you just have to weigh what's more important to you. Are there some natural options for hair? Sure. But I think you'll be hard to find that they perform better than engineered, which is maybe there's natural origins and there's some chemistry applied or completely synthetic chemistries, you just have to to weigh those choices, which is more important to you. And natural doesn't always mean better. For example, you can have some natural oils or extracts or hydrolyzed proteins, and those can be more irritating than synthetic alternatives or non-natural alternatives. So you just have to weigh what's important to you. The thing you have to realize is that as formulators, even formulators at the big companies, they focus mostly on making a product that works the best. And if some natural ingredient is the best choice in a, in a case, that's what companies will go with. Uh, big companies really want to optimize performance. Smaller companies will formulate to optimize a good marketing story, and that, that can happen. It, it can make ingredients that have a more natural story to them, but often what happens is you're sacrificing performance. Yeah, I've actually worked for a brand that has scrapped on numerous occasions natural product concepts because a marketing person comes in and says, I I don't want any chemicals, I want all natural things. And at the end of the day, we test it with a broad group of people and they're like, this sucks. Where's my my sulfates? Where's my silicones? Um, So... 
Well, we have time for one more question. Perry, hit play. All right, here we go. Hello, Valerie and Perry. This is Shay from Normandy Park, Washington. Thanks for taking my question. So I recently got really into Asian beauty, and some of my favorite bloggers recommend patting your skincare products into your face versus rubbing or smearing, especially sunscreen. They say the reasons for this is that A, patting is more gentle on your skin as rubbing can pull at your skin, especially the delicate eye area, perhaps causing wrinkles. B, patting encourages circulation. C, patting results in a more even application, which is very important for sunscreen. And D, rubbing can actually wipe the product off, resulting in uneven coverage, which would be a huge problem with sunscreen. Many refer to a PubMed study that shows a loss of protection when the sunscreen is rubbed in. There was also a video going around from a Japanese morning show that demonstrated the difference. The rubbed-in sunscreen showed tiny holes in the sunscreen film that let the light penetrate the skin. I personally use a silicone applicator to apply my more precious products and my sunscreen. That way, no product is lost to my palms. I feel like I'm getting even coverage, but I'm wondering what the Beauty Brain's take is on the life-changing padding versus rubbing showdown. Thanks so much for an informative and entertaining show. Well, now that was an interesting question. Wow, Shay, thanks so much. I love that you included references, studies, and uh, it's such an interesting topic. Now, Perry, are you team padding or team smearing? I've got to be honest with you. I've always been a bit of a smearer. Padding. <laughs> I feel uh, like a lot of men are. I just want to say that. A lot of women are too. Um, but this is a topic where I could see why one would choose padding over smearing. And I could see why sometimes one would just choose smearing. And I, I think there's not a lot of studies. I know that Shay provided this study about the sunscreen application. Uh, but I, yeah. I don't think a lot else exists out there. I, and I'm just skeptical of a study like that. Uh, it's, it would be so hard to control. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 would need a, I would need a few repeat studies on something like that. I, I think the, the biggest thing with sunscreen is just getting people to use them in the first place, whether you're padding or spreading. <laughs> yeah. Just use it, you know, one way or another. Yeah. I can see how in this study they were trying to say, okay, sunscreens, the way we validate SPF is to apply a certain amount of product over a certain number of square centimeters to allow even coverage and even film to protect the skin. And if you are smearing a product around and you're not paying attention to the application, I could see how maybe you would have more product in one area and less product in another area. I totally get that. I've even seen it on myself when I've been out in the sun where I haven't done an amazing job of applying sunscreen. But in terms of padding, I don't know that that's an alternative either because I think you could just as easily have a, a bad application to the skin. I know a lot of people, as Shay mentioned, say that, well, you should pat because it tugs less on your skin than smearing and you'll age less. I don't really know if that's true. Uh, the one thing I do find when I'm applying products to my face, well, first of all, I'm an over-applier because I would okay. just rather saturate my skin and smearing or patting becomes completely irrelevant at that point in time because I'm just like drenched in product. Sure. But I found that if my hands are dry, the hand can tend to absorb the product. Mr. Cosmetic Chemist has that's what I call my husband. Uh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist has really dry hands all the time. So when he goes to put something on his face, it's like already gone because his hands sucked it up. So I totally love that Shay uses the silicone applicator so that no product gets wasted. But I feel like you could smear it with the silicone applicator or pat, and I, th I think you would be fine. I'm not sure there's a long-term way we can measure patting versus smearing and, and anti-aging. Uh, but I have also found that sometimes if I have a product that has a lot of like fatty alcohol or structurant or waxes in it, and I'm applying it to my skin, I tend to like push the product around a lot and it doesn't seem to like stick wherever I put it. Yeah. And I, I think that's more of just like bad product. And so maybe I would be better off patting instead of smearing at that point in time. So I think it depends on a, how dry your hands are because, you know, your hands are skin too. And B, what type of product are you putting on? 
Or C, you could just go with my method, which is just drench your skin. Uh, well, I'll, I'll have to try this padding thing. Honestly, I've never tried it. It just seems so much slower to <laughs> apply. I just put it on and wipe it out. Oh, gosh. One time, I'll have to find it and send it to you, Perry. I watched this video of how someone recommended to put a serum on their face. It was a oh, brand. Yeah. And it was literally two drops in the palm, and they continued to pat their face for, I'm not even kidding you, like seven minutes on this video. Wow. And I was like, the serum's in her hands already. How can you... Or her skin sucked it up. How could she still be patting it on? It just... So I feel like it just depends what you're doing. But in the case of something like sunscreen, which is specifically what Shay spoke to this study about, it's just really important to make sure that you're covering the skin as evenly as possible. And if that's patting or smearing or spraying or whatever, um, I think if you just pay attention, you should be okay. Right. Just don't spray directly in your face. Like you do. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. I think that's all we have time for today. If you get a chance, you can go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And we actually do read your feedback. So if you feel like something's too loud in the show or not loud enough, or I'm recording on a bad microphone, which sometimes I am, you can leave that and we'll try to correct the improve yeah. the show yeah of course negative ones make us feel a lot worse than all the positive ones <laughs> so you got that going for you <laughs> also no positive please yeah also don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts on instagram we're at the beauty brains 2018 on twitter we're at the beauty brains and we have a facebook page and as a quick reminder, the Beauty Brains are on Patreon. And thank you so much to everyone who has uh, donated and joined. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do it. This will help keep the show ad-free, which I like about my podcast. And it's going to prevent me from having to go back to corporate America and work for one of those big beauty brand companies making the big bucks. Yes, uh, I, although I like my independence. Yeah. Independence is great. And... I want everyone to know we do put a ton of time in on the show, just the preparation alone for answering your questions to the fullest of our potential takes time. I think on this hard water episode, if you added up all the time I'd spent reading papers, even if some of them were before this episode, it was hours. So, anything... Oh yeah, and then the, the editing of the show and, you know, while we know we have a lot of background knowledge and so it's some of the questions we can just kind of answer off the top of our heads. But I also like to verify the stuff that I've known for years just to make sure that's the latest technology and the latest findings with science. So it takes some time to put this together. It sure does. But we love what we do, and I think that's what matters the most. So if you like what we do and want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens! <laughs>